0: Corinthians 9, verses 19 through the end of chapter 9, and our focus is going to be on the very concluding paragraph, verses 24 to 27, but I want to read all of it to us, beginning at verse 19 here, the Word of God. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some." I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Father, we pray for your understanding. We pray for your enlightenment. We pray for the work of the Spirit that you would accompany your Word with understanding and power given to us. We need you We confess that you are the one ultimately who teaches us all things, and we trust you to do so by your Spirit in this time. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When I was in fifth grade, I was at YMCA camp one year, and I ran in a race, and I won the race. I still remember the day. I still remember running around the camp, and we had to run up a dirt path and then around behind cabins. It is still vivid in my mind to this day. I think it's the first race I ever won and probably the last race I ever run too. Even though I ran cross-country track, tracks, I never won anything. The prize was a blue ribbon, and I think I still have it in a box somewhere in our basement, but I'm guessing that it's pretty faded by now, and I'm guessing that few people remember that race. My mom probably doesn't even remember it, even though I'm sure I talked about it after camp. It was a perishable crown, wasn't it? It was something that faded. On the other hand, you and I, everyone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, is in a spiritual race. We are all in the spiritual race that every Christian must be aware of. It's part of the calling of each one who is called by Christ to run the race set before us, looking to the Lord, trusting in Him, and living for Him as we run that spiritual race. The Apostle Paul was writing to the young church at Corinth. Actually, Corinth is located about 10 miles from uh, where the Isthmian Games were held in Greece. These games were held every two or three years, and they were second only to the Olympic Games at the time. Paul was initially at Corinth in his evangelistic tour there for about one and a half years, from part of AD 50 to AD 52, and so he would have been there for the Isthmian Games in the spring of 51. I don't think you can Google who won the Isthmian Games of 51. It's forgotten, isn't it? It's probably lost. Maybe it's there somewhere. But they were held there, and it's very possible that the apostle would have witnessed some of the events, and believers at Corinth would have been very much aware of these races at the games and other competitions there. And that's the illustration that Paul picks up on in the concluding paragraph of our text. In the paragraph that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on tonight, in verses 19 to 23, Paul is, again, coming to the, the whole idea of his apostolic freedom and the rights that he has an, as an apostle. And he's saying he's willing to give up these apostolic rights and his freedom to a large extent to do everything that by some means he might save some. And he talks about he becomes a Jew to the Jews. He becomes as a Gentile to the Gentiles. To the weak, he becomes weak. And he's talking about the gray areas of the Christian life as they applied in that day and age, whether you kept the ceremonial law or not. And it was okay for Christians to keep the ceremonial law as long as they didn't see it as somehow contributing to their salvation, which is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Or it's okay to become like the weak and to limit your freedoms in some way in order to not be a stumbling block for them. And the apostle is saying he's willing to do that. He's willing to give up his own prerogatives, his own rights, his own freedoms to a large degree depending on the group that he's with and he's seeking to win. And in verse 22 he says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. You see the great priority the apostle had in extending the kingdom of Christ. And then he bridges into really the application of this principle to the believers at Corinth and to all of us in a more generalized way, not simply in terms of what we are willing to do to reach others for Christ, but the whole matter of being willing to run the spiritual race, as it were, for Jesus Christ. He calls the Corinthians to apply themselves to advance their spiritual lives as if they are in a race. All believers must take their spiritual lives very seriously. We must exert ourselves with every effort, certainly in the evangelization of the lost, but also in living the Christian life generally, the way we live every day, the way we do our jobs, the way we live in our homes, the way we spend our time, just as if we were actually in a race. And he also uses the imagery of being in the boxing ring, and he says he doesn't box as one beating the air. He doesn't just flail and miss. He wants to aim so he can hit, as it were. This is not speaking of exertion to earn salvation. It's not like we're in a race to earn salvation from God if we run fast and hard enough. Rather, it is exertion to persevere in faith and in love and in obedience to our Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit and to the glory of God. So we want to think a little bit from our text this evening what it means to run the spiritual race and especially how that relates to self-control, with, which is mentioned here and comes in view in these concluding verses of chapter 9. The first point we find is that running the spiritual race calls every believer to exercise self-control. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Running the spiritual race calls every believer to exercise self-control. Think about how salvation changes us. In Titus chapter 2, it says that the grace of God that brings salvation has come, and it calls every believer to say no to ungodly desires. I think that summarizes the way change takes place in the believer's life. It's from the inside out. It's basically saying the grace of God, which is a summary of the work of salvation in Christ, the grace of God comes to us, we receive it by faith, and then it transforms us from inside out. It begins to change us. We become new creatures in Christ, and Jesus Christ has changed and is changing the deepest recesses of our hearts. So now that where we used to have old loves and old desires for the things of this world only, now there are new desires that are growing and that are remaking us from within, new desires for the Lord and for His Word and for serving Him and for delighting in Him and the things of God. There's a new orientation that we have. We are now indwelt by the the Holy Spirit of God Our typical description of the Holy Spirit is with this word holy. So there's this new love for holiness. Whereas before we had seen holiness as something outward only, some set of rules or laws, now it's a whole new inward reality of our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and our desires being conformed to Jesus more and more. A changed life is possible because of the transforming grace of God. And so self-control is possible now. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. The grace of God teaches us to want to say no so that we can begin to be like this athlete who exercises self-control in all things. There are two extremes to avoid when we think about self-control. One is that uh, we are blind to the battle for self-control, to fail to see that the grace of God leads us to a changed life. You see, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something God intends to produce in our lives. It's an important aspect of growing in Christ. If you neglect this important area of growth, you imperil your spiritual growth. You leave yourself wide open To spiritual attack and temptation. You're like a city, the Proverbs say, with walls broken down. Not many of us have been in cities with walls broken down and are worried about uh, armies invading. Maybe we could use the analogy some of you probably have vegetable gardens at this time of year, and maybe you're out in a more rural area where there are lots of deer and rabbits and things like that. And if you have a nice garden with all those fruits and vegetables in your backyard and you don't have a fence around it of some kind, then you know what's going to occur. The animals are going to love you and love your garden. They're going to come in and eat all your uh, corn or your green beans or your tomatoes or whatever it is they like to eat. We planted some new flowers this year, and we looked out, and there was a bunny rabbit out there just taking them the whole way down to the ground, and we were on our guard. That rabbit was not going to do that to those flowers. Proverbs says that like a city with its wall broken down is the man who lacks self-control. If you neglect this area of self-control in our spiritual race, you're like a soldier on guard duty who falls asleep and you allow the enemy to surprise the army. At the other extreme, we might say, is to act as though self-control is all a matter of self-effort. You see, one extreme is to denigrate self-control and say, oh, we don't need self-control. We're new creations in Christ. We don't have to think about that. And fail to see that it's a fruit of the Spirit, and it's something God calls us to. The other extreme is to see self-control as completely a matter of our own willpower and self-effort. No, it is to be Spirit-empowered. We must not disconnect God's command about self-control from His grace to us in Christ. And this is true for all the Christ like virtues we're called to put on. You could probably list the nine fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and 6. And when it talks about uh, the fruit of the Spirit, something the Spirit imparts and produces in us, but all of those nine fruit of the Spirit are also, in other places in Scripture, commanded for us to do. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, we're commanded to rejoice. Self-control must originate from an experience of God's grace in your heart that you know God's love in Christ and you are satisfied with him above everything else, that he becomes the ultimate love and desire of your heart. He is your passion and joy. And self-control is part of that God-centered, Christ-oriented foundation of your life and of your heart. It's not a mere matter of willpower, although certainly we must exercise our wills. The will is involved, and you and I must be pleading with the Lord and praying for His enabling grace in this area of our lives and trusting in the Spirit's enabling power when we see areas of weakness in our life where our self-control is weak or failing in some way and confessing that to the Lord and guarding against any pride in our life, especially spiritual pride, which is so insidious. So God's pattern begins with his grace, and self-control is produced by the Spirit, but God's grace teaches us to say no to worldly passion. and So all of us are running this spiritual race, and self-control is a part of it, It's interesting, isn't it, how self-control in our culture and society, self-control is not something that's seen as very good. Maybe in some contexts it is, but the, the entire message of the world which we receive most of the time is to treat yourself well, pamper yourself, really. You deserve a break today was what the McDonald's theme used to be, I think I need to go and get a latte or one of those um, milkshakes they have that are so good. You know, they have a small and a medium milkshake at McDonald's, but if you get the medium, it's very big, (laughs) just so you know. But I only got a medium, right? The culture says if it feels good, do it. All your desires are okay and simply part of being human, so don't feel any guilt about indulging. Isn't that the message that our culture is giving to us. But in sharp contrast to this, the Word of God speaks clearly about the nature of the spiritual race we are in. He says all of us are in this race. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And the implication is if the athletes do it for a perishable crown, how much more should we learn to run this spiritual race by exercising self-control? Secondly, we find that running the spiritual race calls us to submit our whole being to God. Running the spiritual race calls us to submit our whole being to God. Mind, body, emotions. Here in verses 26 and 27, Paul emphasizes submitting his body to self-control with the goal of this greater good of the evangelization of the known world at his time. He says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. Literally, I beat my body, and I think it's good that they didn't translate it that way in the ESV. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Think about these arenas that I've mentioned. The body first. Paul specifically mentions the body here. Arenas of your life and my life in which we are called to exercise self-control. One is honor God with your body. We've just seen that in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 where Paul is talking about um, sexual immorality, and he says, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. A number of times in the New Testament, we are explicitly told that our bodies belong to the Lord. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're to glorify Him with what we do. The context of 1 Corinthians 6 was sexual immorality, so that's certainly one application of this. But there are many ways Christians are called to be self-controlled, What we look at, what we talk about and joke about, what we think about, what we imagine. And we know that one of the the best scriptural exhortation when it comes to sexual temptation is to flee temptation, like Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Or like Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, flee the evil desires of youth. We could also think, when we think of the area of the arena of our body, of that little body part, the tongue. We taught a course the other year called War of Words, and there's always a lot of response when we teach that book because it's very practical about how we so easily offend with our tongues. We get into these wars of words with those around us. James 3 verse 2 says we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. So if you ask, am I in control of my body, what about that little part, the tongue? And James is calling us to examine ourselves. Or we could think of other bodily appetites, just normal eating Drinking, the danger of gluttony, the danger of, of alcohol abuse or drug abuse or things like that. Or what about laziness? This is a major area of self-control. I read the other week that businesses lose millions of dollars a year, maybe billions, because employees are doing things like uh, playing computer games when the boss doesn't look. Or we could even think more pointedly about uh, our bodily weakness The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak when it comes to thinking, spiritual thoughts, studying God's Word, taking time for prayer, certainly all areas of self-control. 1 Corinthians 9 sounds pretty strange to modern ears. Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. He's not talking about some kind of monastic, ascetic thing that he does No, he's talking about a balanced way to live before God, keeping your bodily appetites subject and submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ, which again, it is not merely a matter of the act of our will, it is an act of dependence on Christ. Another arena, though, which we could also talk about, which Scripture brings to mind, is that not only the body, but our mind's. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Or we think of Philippians 4.8 where Paul says finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. I like a quote that Jerry Bridges wrote. He says, our minds are mental greenhouses where unlawful thoughts, once planted, are nurtured and watered before being transplanted into the real world of unlawful action. I look at that quote and think, what he's saying is, if you go to the grocery store or the nursery and buy some plants, and you bring them home, uh, that's kind of what's happening in our thought life when we welcome wrong thoughts into our minds. And it's only a matter of time before, in a sense, we go out to our gardens and plant those thoughts in the soil, and they take fruit in action. Bridges is saying, think of your mind as a mental greenhouse, that you are nurturing either plants that glorify God or plants that don't glorify the Lord, and they're going to come out in your actions eventually. It's a very sobering thing to think that you really can't control your actions, your words. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's going on in your heart often comes out in ways that you don't want it to. Isn't that the case? Our minds are mental greenhouses. So we can think about all these things that that we just talked about in terms of bodily temptation, but the Principle is we must not allow in our minds what we would not allow in our actions. The, the tough thing about our minds and our thoughts is that we know that that's an area of our life that only God sees. We can hide our thoughts. We can hide our minds from everyone else. But for the person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, who walks in the fear of the Lord, and to walk in the fear of the Lord means that you have a reverence for God that you are seeking to live before him, knowing that your life, your thoughts, your heart are always laid bare before him. It's in accordance with Psalm 139 where the psalmist says, You perceive my thoughts from afar, and before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. So when it comes to the area of our minds and self-control, we need to think about the kind of prayer that we read in Psalm 19, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Or we need to think of Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We need to pray for God's grace to guard if we're going to be growing in self-control. And then we can also talk about the arena of our emotions that we need to exercise self-control in our emotions. You think of the emotions of anger or resentment, self-pity, bitterness, rage, all those kind of things, or the other end of the spectrum, peace, joy, rejoicing in God. I like the way Proverbs 16.32 says it. Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. Remember how the Battle of the Alamo took place, and those Texans tried to defend that old kind of um, church, and it was, had a wall to it and a, a lower back wall. But finally, when the uh, superior forces of Santa Ana took over, after uh, wave after wave was repulsed, it fell. Well, Proverbs is saying, it's one thing to take a city. Really, there have been lots of cities taken by ungodly men. <laughs> Better a a patient man than a warrior who takes a city. I was reading a Wall Street Journal article the other week that said, venting your anger has now been proven scientifically to not work. How do you like that? Venting makes you more angry was the point of what the article said. This is a secular article based on studies that had been done, you know, taking control groups and letting them vent and see how they feel after that and so forth. And they find that the more you vent the angrier you get. And one of the subpoints of the article was, just guess what the Internet and all the blogosphere and all these uh, freedoms to just instantly type whatever you think, guess what that's done to the level of discourse in the world? You might guess it has lowered it dramatically. Everybody's spewing their anger, and they're just getting angrier. Venting is not the God-appointed biblical way to deal with anger. The biblical way is repentance turning to the Lord, confessing your sin, humbling yourself before God, bowing before Him, asking for His grace to forgive you and to change you from within. That's the way we're to deal with anger in our lives. Yes, there are some ways to appropriately express it, maybe discuss with the person what is on your mind, but not just to vent in this haphazard way. So all these arenas of our life, body, mind, emotions, we're called to give ourselves to obey God's Word and to run the spiritual race, growing in self-control as we trust in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and to take heed to small steps to growth to daily enter these battles of self-control to seek to please the Lord. And we must remember it's a daily thing. It's a step-by-step thing. There are small steps. It's often two steps forward, one step back but we're trusting the Lord. And this brings us to our final point. Running the spiritual race calls us to keep the great goal in view. Running the spiritual race calls us to keep the great goal in view. Verse 25 puts it this way. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. We look forward to the imperishable wreath. And the explanation here is not that Paul is speaking about earning salvation in some way, meriting salvation, being good so that God will receive you. No, he's made it very clear in 1 Corinthians that salvation is a free gift of God by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But there is this call to perseverance. It's interesting how Scripture helps us with both the promises that Scripture holds forth, The promise of the imperishable crown, but also the warnings of Scripture as well. And there are these warnings, and Paul concludes with this, that often commentators are confused by, and people don't understand it, when Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. And people tend to want to make that say something less than Paul is speaking about apostasy. They want it to say, maybe I don't want to be disqualified for my reward. In other words, I don't want to enter heaven without the full reward. I don't think that's the case. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking this in its ultimate sense. But it's not as though Paul was fearful that he wasn't saved or was going to lose his salvation in any sense. No, Paul is just speaking about the reality that even as a preacher of the gospel— Even as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul knew the warnings of Scripture were clear, that there was, Scripture made it clear, it was necessary for every believer to persevere in faith. Scripture says God keeps us to the end. Yes. 1 Peter 1, 13, we are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. We are kept by the power of God, but... God keeps us by enabling us to persevere. So Scripture many times talks about the warnings, you must persevere if you persevere. And in fact, we're going to move into chapter 10 next time with these strenuous warnings against idolatry. And Paul is going to talk about the example of the ancient Israelites and how they, in the wilderness, how they fell into idolatry and they died and things like that. And he says, and those things apply to us as well. So be on your guard. Scripture has both the promises and the warnings for us, and we need both. Yes, the promises are supreme, and this promise of the imperishable crown is one of the highest goals that there is, but the warnings are to be taken as well. It reminds me of Paul in Philippians 3, when he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I myself have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's that imperishable crown. It is the fullness of knowing Jesus Christ in glory. It is not some kind of temporal prize. The prize is Jesus Christ and fully knowing him and being known by him. You and I have that assurance. We don't need to be shaken in our faith. He wasn't trying to scare the Corinthians in that negative sense. But the assurance that God gives us is not an assurance that allows for license. Paul doesn't say, uh, let sin that grace may abound. That was the accusation that was thrown at him, and he he refutes that in Romans 6. But he knew that that even he, the Apostle Paul, was called to persevere so that after preaching to others, he wouldn't be disqualified. We work at being like Christ. We exercise self-control. We run the spiritual race out of a new power at work within us. But we also work at being like Christ out of an assurance of our true destiny. And this is such a great encouragement to us. We struggle in this life We fall, we fail, we sin, we get up, we confess our sin, we brush ourselves off. We know that we're received by Christ. But there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will appear. And that ultimate hope of every true believer is the anchor that keeps us founded on the rock. And it's the accurate and eternal perspective that enables us to see through the self-serving nature of, of our wrong desires, and to hold to Jesus Christ. And it's that hope that enables us to keep running the spiritual race. You know, I saw some photos and some video footage this week of refugees. You know, they're all pouring from Africa and Asia into Greece through the island of Kos, but other areas as well, They're pouring in, and there was this one photograph of a young man who had come in. He he had struggled up the beach, stony beach, and you just saw him kneel down and kiss the earth, just so happy to be out of that war-torn area. And you just think what goes through refugees' minds, they've arrived. At least they're in Greece, and a lot of them are moving across into Macedonia and elsewhere and trying to get into other parts of Western Europe, but they've arrived. You know, just think that you and I are going to pass on to that true, glorious shore one day. It might be very close. There are some of us here this night who might be on the other side tomorrow or next Lord's Day that is the motivation that enables us to run the spiritual race, that we look forward to the prize of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we're willing to give up anything, to count any cost, to face any self-control, to discipline our bodies, to control our minds, to give our emotions to God for the glory of Jesus our Savior and Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask for you to help us to run this race. You know the details for each one of us, where we are this week, what the temptations are, what the struggles are, what the sorrows are, what are the ways that we need to trust in you, to believe your word, to cry out to you, to fight the fight of faith, to run the race before us with perseverance, with faith and holiness and love. Give us grace to do so. Help us to rejoice always in Jesus our Lord, and we pray in His name. Amen.